Please be advised that the content in the Graves Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Brisbane Volume 1 book, Death at Gracie's Store. Gracie, Meta and Rosina Wood. On the 22nd of March 1964, the residents of Kubaroo were woken by the sounds of emergency vehicles heading to the Woods' small shop and residence. But the fire brigade found much more than they bargained for. This was not a house fire, it was the scene of a murder, and the fire was lit to hide the evidence. Today we speak with Glenn Law, a resident of the area who as a young man saw the murderer before the crime was committed. We'll also speak with Cherie Bazilli, who as a schoolgirl at the time remembers the Wood family. Now, Chris, we visited the story in season one, but we're revisiting it because we've asked Glenn and Cherie to come on and tell us their memories of mm. the time, which is amazing because this happened in 1964 and it was murder of two ladies, Grace or Gracie, as she was known, who owned this little store at Cooperoo, her sister, Meta, and their mother, Rosina. And it was Rosina and Gracie that were murdered that night. Yeah, and the fight that Meta put up was amazing. It was amazing. So just to give a little context for those who may not remember the first season's episode, it was in the early hours of Sunday morning. It was the 22nd of March, 1964. And as you mentioned in the opening, the residents were woken by the sounds of fire trucks racing to Gracie's store and the ladies lived there in the back of the store. And Rosina, their mum, was 76, wheelchair bound. Yeah. Uh, Grace was 48 and Meta was 54. And they ran this small business, a lolly shop and a lunch shop, right near the school where people in the area, workers and the kids used to come and buy their sweets and lunch. Yeah, it was really close to the school. I mean, it was almost in the school grounds, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I'm always blown away by the fact that, that area hasn't changed a great deal. So if you drive down there, you'll see it. And we'll talk to Cherie about that later and her memories of it. But on that night, the ladies were in bed, naturally. It was 11.30pm on the Saturday night. Yep. And Meta called out to Grace that she could see something. And I can only imagine how terrified she was. There was a man wearing a stocking over his face outside their home and he broke through the glass plate window and came in. He'd later be identified as 18-year-old James Christopher Wiley Whiteford of Cooperoo. And his intentions must have been very clear when the police looked at his kit, mm. the, the things that he had with him. He had a leather overnight bag with a hacksaw, a glass cutter, surgical rubber gloves, so he wouldn't leave any fingerprints, I guess, a woman's stocking, which he had over his face, the 22 caliber automatic rifle and a fishing knife. Oh, terrifying. And he broke in by jumping through the plate glass window. Well, I think he was as high as a kite, yeah. basically. He had drugs in his system and he went in and demanded money from the terrified ladies. All the stuff he had on him and the manner in which he did it just to steal money from the till. Grace threatened to call the police. She was very brave. They must have been absolutely terrified. He's put a knife to her throat, walked into the lounge, cut the phone cord, Meta tried to flee and he began shooting. Mm. And he later said, they weren't dead, so I stabbed them. I stabbed the two younger ladies twice each. The old lady sat up in bed and I reloaded the gun and I shot her four or five times. I never knifed her or anything. He said, then he went back into the bedroom again and he saw Meta outside the back door. So Meta tried to escape and tried to crawl out. She was still alive. This is what he said to the police later. And I dragged her back inside and I stabbed her once more. He then started a fire and left the scene. He went down to the Brisbane River at the Norman Park Reach area put the rifle and the knife in the river, and he went for a swim to remove the blood. Yeah. And then he went back there. He went back to the woods home, and he found that the fire hadn't previously caught on as he hoped, so he set about lighting it again. Mm. So he poured two tins of lighter fluid around the room 
where Rosina and Grace lay dead now and Meta was still alive outside. But she couldn't go for help and she lay there for three to four hours in agony, I imagine. So it was 3.50am when finally a neighbour, Mr Richard Victor Crossland, who lived 50 yards away, heard the crackling of the flames and alerted his wife and got up and called the fire brigade. And that's when they approached. And of course, Meta was taken to hospital and she was able to help police with the reconstruction of the murder. So it was a terribly, terribly gruesome incident. But there was a witness to the crime, and we'll talk to Glenn shortly. He was a young man who believed he looked straight in the murderer's eyes before the crime actually happened. So how did the police get onto Whiteford? Well, with Meta's help, and within two days, they believe they had their man. Mm. He had a criminal record for theft, and he was a trainee industrial chemist who worked at the Brisbane Abattoir at Cannon Hill. They arrived at his work on the 24th of March... And he was gone, literally moments before they came looking for him. He obviously must have seen them. He left his white work coat and other personal items in the mangroves near the river to make it look like he'd gone into the river and drowned. But they set up a stakeout to catch him at his home. His poor parents, can you imagine? Mm. Parents were removed from the house, and I think he had a couple of siblings too. And he returned to his home. It's in Sirius Street, Cooper which is still there to this day. He eventually returned and was arrested. So he was taken to the CIB at Wollongabba. He was charged with four counts, two of willful murder, one of attempted murder and of breaking and entering. But before the actual indictment, he confessed to the murders to the police. Which was interesting. It was Tony Murphy, a very senior police officer in Queensland, whose report talked about how Whiteford spoke to him, to Murphy, about deliberately taking drugs to numb himself. Yeah. And interestingly, by pleading guilty to both charges of murder and attempted murder, James Whiteford's was the first guilty plea accepted to a willful murder charge in Queensland's judicial history. Yeah. But he also made history in another way, James Whiteford. He was the first prisoner to complete a Bachelor of Arts degree without attending university lectures, and he finished in the top listing in his year. So he did that from within jail? Within jail. Yeah. He was 16 years into his jail term when he began studying. So this crime took place in 1964. Yeah. In 1987, he was described as a model prisoner and the next year he applied for release to work and and it was granted under supervision of the parole board. He was now 46 years old, which is kind of interesting, almost the same age that Grace was when he murdered her as an 18-year-old. So she was 48. Isn't that interesting? He did marry and he died in 2007. He was 62 and he's buried in Lutchwich Cemetery with his wife, Una Mary Whiteford. Glenn Law, who owns and writes the Brisbane Murder Blogspot, remembers the night of the murder clearly. He believes he saw the perpetrator before the crime took place. And we'll talk to Glenn now. Thanks very much for joining us, Glenn. My pleasure. So I want to start on that Saturday night, 21st of March in 1964. You were a young man with a licence and a new car. What were you driving? I was actually licensed when I turned 17 in 1960. And my dad was a race driver and he raced in Australian Grand Prix. I had a bit of that in my blood. So within six months, I bought a brand new Sunbeam Alpine and I'd go out cruising in the evening and I'd often see Rock and Roll George in Queen Street. Oh, wow, okay. It's old uh, FX Holden. It was quite a sight. So I'd come home to Cooparoo from the city and because the Alpine had a pretty exhaust note, 
I'd swing into Cavanish Road and, you know, down into Sagan and gun the thing up Cabo Road there and enjoy the noise of the exhaust. And in 1964, I went up a peg or two. I managed to buy the TR4 only a few weeks before this incident happened. It's a good-looking car, though. We've got a photo of it in our book, and you've got a photo of it on your blog. Yeah, that's my car, British Racing Green TR. So on that night, when I continued with my ritual, I swung into Cavendish Road, gunned it up the hill, and, you know, it was only about 50 metres before I saw this young bloke standing on the corner of the laneway in front of what we all referred to as Gracie's shop. I looked at him and I thought, well, what are you doing there? You know, about one in the morning, I think it was. And what was he doing there? Standing, motionless, more or less right on the corner of the laneway in front of the shop. He seemed to be looking down towards Old Cleveland Road. And as I came up and passed him, he kind of followed me. I couldn't take my eyes off him because I thought, this is weird. You know, it's all so dark and quiet and nothing doing. And here's a young guy and he looked like he was in a suit. Did he have anything with him? But Because when the police got him, he had a, a swag of stuff in a bag, including a rifle and a knife. Yeah. Did you see any signs of a bag? No, no, nothing. As far as I'm concerned, he was like he was standing there waiting for a bus. The odd thing is that it all broke the next morning, for me anyway. You know, mum came and woke me up and said Gracie and the sisters had been attacked and all the rest of it. I knew I'd seen the guy because it could be no one else. <laughs> right there at that time, other than the bloke who committed that crime. How was he dressed? He looked like he was in a light-coloured suit to me. Okay. It must have been creepy because there was just the two of you on the street in that quiet time at that hour of the morning. Yeah, it was. When I went past him, I kind of felt a bit like that, keeping in mind that, you know, in reality, as I drove by, I would have only been probably about five metres away from him. Yeah. in the car as I went right past him and he watched me. I've often thought, what if he'd flagged me down? Mm. What would mm. I <laughs> what, have done? Yeah. What would I have done? Probably I'd have kept going. I'd had a bad experience or two before about picking up hitchhikers. At what point did those suspicions that you had about him materialise to the point where you went to the police? Oh, well, I had nothing to be suspicious of until the next morning when mum woke me up. She was in a bit of a state because we all knew Gracie and and her sisters and her mother right back from the Roxy Theatre days. I said straight away to mum, I said, well, I saw him. I knew straight away I'd seen him because nobody else would have been standing on that corner in the Cooper Junction if, Mm. if it wasn't him. And she said to me, you better call the police and tell them what you've seen. And I thought, yeah, okay, I should. And that's what I did. I drove down there in the TR and pulled up out front and wandered in. I think I must have said I'm coming down. And they said, right, you know, come down and we'll welcome you. So what happened when you went to the police? How how were you received? Oh, well, you know, in their business-like fashion. (laughs) I've had, thank God, very little to do with them other than once or twice on the side of the road. No, very business-like, and I will admit that after the first hour when they'd come and go into this little office they sat me down in, I started to think, gee, this is getting a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I'd come here to tell them what I saw. There wasn't a lot I could tell them. All I could really do was tell them I saw the bloke and what he looked like. I could tell he was only an 18-year-old or thereabouts, and that's what he was. 
as it turns yeah, out. Absolutely right. And it's when later on they get other people who've seen something or have suspicions or they have a potential suspect in mind that these things are corroborative. Yeah, that's right. I was there at the CIB at Gabba for at least mm. a couple of hours. Those were the days, Glenn, when you didn't think necessarily you'd be a suspect and you didn't think to say, I want to call my lawyer in yeah. the 60s as much as we all do now from watching all the television shows. Sure. I was naive. I just thought, well, I'm going to help out here. I mean, we're talking the very next day. Mm. Uh, they would have been looking at anyone and everyone who yeah. was anywhere near the place. Well, here I was right at the spot and admitting to it, more or less at the time that the murders happened. Yeah. But what really struck me, and this wasn't until years later, the advent of the internet and my being able to read, which I didn't do at the time, the newspaper reports, the fact that they said that he did the deed, then he went, put himself to bed. I thought, how could that guy have done all of that after I saw him? When I saw him... There's no way in the world he could have ever been involved in any murder. I mean, he was too neat and tidy. It's interesting that he was on the cusp of doing it at the sure. time you saw him. Well, I believe he hadn't done anything at the time I saw him. When you saw the media and his photos in the paper or on the news, hmm. in your mind's eye, was it definitely the guy you saw yep. that night? Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, the facial features, because of the fact it was night time and the lighting yeah. wasn't so thrilling, I had car headlights on him for a few seconds, but I knew it was him. And, of course, there was no buses at 1am in the morning in those days anyway. So, no. as you said, he looked like he was waiting for a bus, but he, there was no reason for him to be there, was there? None at all. That was the first thing that struck me. I thought, well, what the heck are you doing there, pal? Mm. Glenn, you still come home that way, mate? <laughs> No, see, I had my 21st birthday only a couple of months after all this happened, and my present from my folks was a, a cruise on the Oriana. So I met my future wife on the Oriana. Uh-huh. It wasn't long before I moved away from the family home and doing that drive up Cavendish Road each night. With the four-door sedan after that, yeah? They're typical, yeah. Well, <laughs> Anyone who wants to check out your blog, it's brisbanemurder.blogspot.com. Also, if you just Google... Cooperu triple murders. It comes up. Yeah, pretty, that's how pretty, I found it. Yeah. Just in closing, Glenn, can I ask you, has that vision of seeing James Wyford ever left you? No. No. For many years I went on with my life and didn't give the whole thing another thought. But with the internet and the, the revival of the story, the image of him that night is just as vivid in my mind. Thank you for sharing that memory because it's something that's so completely unique to the case and mm. and nobody mm. else had that experience. Pleased to be able to contribute. Cherie remembers Gracie, Meta and their mother Rosie. In 1960 to 1966, Cherie went to Cooper State Primary School on Brisbane's south side, grades 1 to 7, near Gracie's shop. And Cherie joins us now. Thank you for having me. It's an honour to talk about the sad memories and also the happy ones today. We're really fascinated by what you wrote in Glenn's blog and we thought we'd get you on firsthand. So how did you come to know the ladies and to visit Gracie's store? Well, the store, as you mentioned, is right next to where I went to school at Cooper Primary School. From grade three onwards, we came down to the big school and Gracie's was off Cavendish Road on that little lane in the corner that just went straight into our school. I used to walk up right past her shop and straight into school each day and we were allowed to go out at lunchtime 
to buy things like it was our local tuck shop. We'd come out to breakfast some mornings and my dad had left a penny or threepence for my little sister and me. And you could buy an awful lot of lollies at Gracie's before school or at lunchtime or after school for the walk home for a penny or threepence. Those were the days when you could pick your lollies out, couldn't you? They'd all be one in the of counter. Those yeah. One of those and three of them. They're actually in that window. For lollies, you'd line up parallel to Cav Road there. And I think it was usually Gracie with the straight dark hair, the younger lady. And for a penny, you could get two milk bottles, three raspberries, eight chocolate bullets, <laughs> one cobber, chocolate-coated caramel. They were quite expensive. The other counter when you went in, the people who bought their lunch, they'd line up there two and three deep of little kids. You get those triangular frozen orange treat drinks and the 11 pence for a round pie or a shilling, which was 12 pennies for a square pie. So it was like our own corner store or our yeah. own personal tuck shop. The ladies were efficient and busy. It's interesting, actually, although I didn't know it at the time, was already familiar with the family and the ladies from when they used to have that shop over near the Roxy. They were already a bit of an institution in Cooperu. That was just across the other side of Old Cleveland Road near the old Roxy Theatre, wasn't it? Right beside the Roxy Theatre. Uh, my mum used to call it the Dolls Hospital. What do you remember about the individuals, the ladies themselves? I never knew Gracie and Meta apart. The shop was called Gracie's, but to be honest, I didn't know which was which. <laughs> but Gracie was a slightly younger lady in her late 40s with straight dark hair, quite thin. And Meta was the older sister, a little rounder and longer grey hair, always in a bun. They were both polite and efficient as they worked their way through. Their mum, Mrs. Wood, Rosina Wood. She was what people called in her second childhood. The ladies lived behind the shop. So when you looked behind the counter, there was sort of like an L shape, you could see their living quarters. And their mum used to sit there in a wheelchair in her nighty and dressing gown. And she had her white hair in two little plaits holding a dolly. So she could see her daughters, they could look out for her. She didn't seem to be in any pain or confusion. She just was there and you could see a little bit of their lounge room at the back there. What a lovely family business. It really was. You were nine years old and in grade five when the attack happened. Yeah. And Glenn told us his memories of the attack. Yeah. How did you hear about it and what was the reaction as you remembered at school and at home? Because it must have been quite a shock next school day when you came down and the shop had been burnt out and to know that the ladies, you'd never see them again. I guess it was 1964 when that terrible event happened. I actually knew about it on the Sunday morning, probably only five or six hours after it happened because we were driving to Sunday school. Drive up along Cavendish Road from the railway line end towards St Stephen's, which is up on the top of Cav Road. And as we drove past Gracie's, we looked out the window and I remember thinking the whole shop was burnt down, but it wasn't because obviously the main front part of the shop is still standing now, but it was their living quarters at the back and probably it went into the shop a bit. So we just saw all this fire and we had at that point no idea what had happened. Like we didn't listen to the radio in the morning. We didn't have Twitter or Facebook to let us know. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it wasn't an uncommon thing to see fires frequently on a weekend You'd drive past and see all these cars lining up looking at a house on fire. It happened quite a bit. We didn't know anyone had been hurt. When did you find that out? We didn't know on the way to Sunday school for sure. Maybe we found out when we got home by word of mouth or maybe it was on the the news. Maybe we knew when we got to school the next day. And at that stage, I think we thought they had all died. We just thought it was a robbery gone wrong. But he'd prepared for it by trying to numb himself to the feelings of hearing those ladies screaming and crying and he shot them then he stabbed them and he burnt it and then he came back and burnt it some more. 
But we didn't know all of that, and I'm kind of thinking I'm grateful we didn't as little kids. Yeah, Yeah. of course. You had a school reunion not that long ago. Were the ladies remembered then? Was it talked about? It's not the tragedy or anything that we spoke of. It was remembering such an institutional part of, of our childhood. It was a different time, though, wasn't it, Cherie? Yeah, it was really awful as a child to find out the violence that had occurred. It really was the end of the innocence, as they say. People often say, when we heard about the Beaumont children in Adelaide a couple Mm. of years later, that was the end of the innocence for Australia. But this was kind of like it for us. That was a traumatic thing, a traumatic memory, seeing it burnt out like that on a Sunday morning. But things I really remember was it being such an everyday, literally everyday part of our school day. Lollies, the nice ladies, their mum sitting there happily in her second childhood, as it should be. It's two years gone now for the ladies and they're now at peace in the Belmont Cemetery. Meta, of course, didn't die in the attack. She died years later. Yeah. And it's funny because even when Meta came back, I think I still thought she was Gracie. Because she did come back there for a little while. I imagine it must have been terribly hard to continue there without Gracie and her mum. I think so. You also had another strange connection with the man who was found guilty of the murder, who eventually then went on to study and get a degree. Yeah. Apparently he went on and made some good out of his life and studied as a lot of people in jails and correctional centres did in those days, and got his degree from the University of Queensland in 1982. In fact, at that time I was a librarian at the University of Queensland, and the external study students, like the ones in correctional centres, came through, and I used to help answer their inquiries and help them with their research. So I don't remember the names, but I definitely worked with a number of people in incarceration centres and would that not be strange? If it was James Whitefoot and maybe something good has come out of all that tragedy. He was only 18. Let's hope he turned his life around, but nothing really changed for the loss of the ladies and for Meta going on without her mum and her sister. Do you ever drive past the area now? I can't go past without having a glance up to Gracie's store. It's quite fascinating, isn't it, to see it really hasn't changed in size or shape and it's just there on the corner no, like it always was. It's like little memories from my childhood and in my mind the shop was there and Gracie was in it, I guess. When I drive past places like that, it's like it takes my breath away. You're back there and in some shelf in time that life is still going on and that trajectory. Thank you, Cherie. Thank you very much for sharing your memories with us. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure to honour the ladies. Grace, Meta and Rose rest in Balmoral Cemetery. Their grave is in disrepair. Only Rose and Grace's names are visible on the headstone, but you can visit them there and pay your respects in Section 8403. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series... Available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or round up a group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour.